so much to address in your 36th edition of the Rugby Paper Podcast after another historic moment in English rugby. Wasps have become the second club this month to go into administration and joining me, Chris Hewitt, Nick Kane and Brendan Gallagher to discuss their situation as well as look at the All Blacks going into the autumn is former New Zealand captain and hooker Sean Fitzpatrick. I think this is going to be a chaotic episode in every sense. We've got Chris Hewitt, Brendan Gallagher and Nick Kane back with me, the full house, and we are joined by a great guest for you guys today former New Zealand captain and hooker and current president of Global Sports Organisation Laureate, Sean Fitzpatrick. How are you, Sean? Good afternoon. Good morning, Ollie. And, and gentlemen. Is it afternoon? Where no, are you? No, sure. no it's, it's, it's definitely definitely morning. I'm here in London. You are? Okay. Monday, Monday morning. Good stuff. And how's it all going? How are things? It's been good. We've had a, had a fantastic summer. And uh, now looking forward to the Autumn Internationals, obviously. We'll get to that in a little bit. First of all, I want to talk about your work with the Laureus Sports Academy, widely known and a pretty remarkable project. You're, you're chairman of it. When are the Laureus Awards? Uh, we're at the stage. Uh, we're April. Obviously, obviously, COVID has affected the awards in the last few years. We've had to, had to do those online, um, which is, it's been fine, but not, not great. Uh, so we're, we're looking at alternatives this year, but but April is the, the date that we're looking at. There's, there's three three um, parts of, the, of Laureus. There's there's the awards, which was set up initially in 20, 2000 to, to celebrate excellence in sport. We then have the Academy, um, which is a group of 73 of us, past sporting sporting people. And then we have the, the Sport for Good Foundation, which has just been been phenomenal. It's it's going great guns. We're in sort of over 45 countries now. We support over 300 projects globally that use sport as a mechanism for change. And uh, we've raised over 120 million euros in, in those in those 20 years. So we're very, very excited about that going forward. Remarkable. And you are, you oversee all three parts. I am I am the chairman. I know yeah. these gentlemen, Nick and Brendan and Chris will laugh about this, but I am the chairman of the of the academy and I'm the chairman of the Sport for Good Foundation. Dawn, you were always in charge. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> you were always in charge. Ask any referee. Yeah, exactly. When they asked me, you're going to take up refereeing now you've retired. And I said, why would I do that? I've said 12 years at the top of the game refereeing. <laughs> And so April's the awards. I know more immediately coming up is the Laureus Challenge 2022. Yep. You've got former Australia cricket captain Steve Waugh involved, former GB cyclist Chris Hoy and South Africa winger Brian Habana. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Obviously, that's a fundraiser as well, isn't it? Yeah, so it's an amazing group. It's, a, it's 100 people. We had one in, in South Africa before the pandemic. Uh, raised, raised a lot of money, but it's uh, 100 like-minded people donating their time. And, and money for, for the good of Laureus. So, you know, we're, we're very excited, you know, just in terms of, of those 100 people that are going to be walking that 100 kilometres is, is quite a challenge. Obviously, with my knees, I'm, I'm not, not able to, to partake. So we left it to our, our younger, fitter members and Steve Waugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a 100-kilometre trek through the UAE. Is that right? Through the UAE and camping, camping out every night. Brian and, and Brian O'Driscoll, Brian Habana and Brian O'Driscoll led the one. Uh, and John de Villiers in South Africa, you know, a few years ago, and they had the most amazing time. It's a real team effort, and and they love it, and it's selling selling really well this one. And and hopefully we can just fill the last few spaces. Is that going to be documented? Are there going to be cameras and? You know, yes, very much. So. Yeah. We've seen our social media team along for the for the walk and uh, be very, very well documented. 
That's amazing. And I think I think ultimately, Ollie, it's it's about raising money for for the children. Yeah. Um, and our projects, in terms of in terms of what that's achieved over the last twenty two years, is is just mind blowing in terms of how it's turned lives around. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I was just about to get onto that. So if people are wanting to donate, how would they go about that? Uh, well, they go to our, they go to laureus.com, www.laureus.com, uh, and then they'll see see it on the on the page there. Well, I'll be following that challenge very, very closely, and it's an incredible initiative. Uh, so look forward to it. Mid-November it is, isn't it? I can't remember the exact yes, dates. Yep. But... Sean, just, just quickly on, on, on Laureus, when you say that it, it's, I mean, it, it's clearly been remarkably successful. You've generated a hell of a lot of money apart from anything else. When you say that you're using sport to drive change, can you just give us an idea of the kind of change you're thinking about or the kind of change you think you're in the process? So, so the big thing is, Chris, is, is Mandela was our founding patron and he, he gave us the, the words that sport has the power to change change the world. Sport has sport speaks a language that the youth of today understand. And, and it's about just changing the way they think, get, getting them in the classroom. Really, that's literally or just just changing the the way they think. And if I give you, a, you know, in terms of our sport, in terms of rugby, we have a number of rugby initiatives and, and programs around the world. And probably the one that probably epitomises what we're about is is, is a project called Op- Operation Breakthrough in Hong Kong that was set up right at the start, almost I think in, in 2001, 2002 by Robbie Mick Robbie, uh, who runs Hong Kong Rugby now. He's a, he's a former policeman. And and back then he saw these these young boys getting into trouble and and going before the judge, and uh, they had a choice. And, and between Hong Kong rugby and 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 the police, Hong Kong police, they set up this project, Operation Breakthrough. They go before the judge. You're either going to go into a juvenile detention centre, or you're going to go down to the rugby club on three nights a week. And and that was that was how that project started. And it's been absolutely phenomenal in terms of changing those boys' opportunities in life, really. And we've had policemen that have now come out of that operation. We've got coaches. It's, it's been, been amazing, and it's, and it's still, still progressing. So that's, that's one, of the, one of the initiatives that's making a, a real change. Brilliant. In terms of the awards, could I ask you to give some early front runners for Sportsman and Sportswoman of the Year? <laughs> well, there's another. It's, it's a real challenge. And, and, and the gentleman here, uh, we, we use 1,000 sports journalists globally. And and they give us they give us six in each category, and then and there's seven categories, and then we we as an academy we vote. You get uh, you get three choices: one, two, three, and then and then they're announced at the awards. But there's you know sport. You know it's been so nice this summer, especially yeah. just seeing sport back and back to almost normality. Really, well, we'll look forward to the awards in April as well. Thank you. Look, we have so much to cover today, so I'm going to have to move on. First things first. So we're currently Monday morning at the time of recording, October 17th. And I should say that WASPs have not yet gone into administration, but all word says that they're going to. We can't not talk about it. We addressed the Worcester situation a few weeks ago with Mark Evans. That was obviously a very fiery episode. Let's have a, let's have a more civil discussion about it this morning. But WASPs are expected to do the same pretty much today. They have been suspended by the Premiership. No game against Exeter at the weekend. Brendan, I'll come to you. Is the demise of Wasps a bigger statement than that of Wor- Worcester? Oh, mate, that's a difficult one. Um, it probably is. I mean, Wasps, it's, it's difficult to imagine English rugby without Wasps. 
Now, I know Lawrence got a lot of stick the other day on BT for trying to, I think he was just being a bit, you know, misspoke, as they say these days. He was trying to make the case that WAS is a bit different. You know, they, they have just always been there at the elite English club game uh, and not just been there, they've been very successful. The ironic thing, of course, is that they've always been financially very, very vulnerable. WAS have always had a struggle. There are, I mean, us guys are old enough to remember the Sudbury ground and they came really almost mm-hmm. from a, a sort of almost like a village rugby club scenario, you know, three or 400 people. Uh, they, they, were, they became gypsies, didn't they? They were at Loftus Road. They were at Adams Park. They, it just wasn't working there financially. It was a Hail Mary move to Coventry. It was absolutely, they were going out of business to, to 48 hours later if they hadn't made that move. But that move never seemed right to me. It, it, it hasn't been a good fit. They've made some bold but possibly flawed financial decisions, the way to relaunch the club. And you kind of feel this has been around the corner for three or four years. You know, this is not, they've had trouble with um, HMRC before. uh, And then it all came to a, to a boil in in COVID. And um, it's a really, really sad moment. And I I was listening to Lawrence again, talking before the match yesterday, you know, he was really, he said, no, WASP isn't a place. It's a family. And that's absolutely right. There is no place called WASPs. There is no WASP stadium. They are a club, a band of brothers. And when you rip that apart, you know, you rip, it's, it's serious. So I, I found you know, both of them have been deeply depressing, the, the, these club demises. I mean, you know, it is just conceivable that somehow Wasp can salvage something and at least be in the championships next season. But um, it's just that it's part of the, of the greater problems that Premiership Rugby and English Club Rugby are facing. And that, that is now the issue we're talking about, almost not the specific questions of specific clubs how do you cater for everybody now i've always been a fan of the the two leagues of 10 under the same umbrella yeah. because then it's not life and death if you get relegated one year if you're not having a great season if it's not quite working you go down into a second division which is in, in itself a good league and you're sharing the tv money the commercial money the sponsorship money and it's more of a homogenous whole and i i've always thought that is the way but that is a huge decision. You know, you're going to have to knock clubs down into the second division. You're probably going to have to ask some clubs to come out of the second division and go into National One. Some might want to do it. But again, there's a huge amount of arguing and politics to make that happen. If, if there's a desire to make it happen. Yeah. To me, Ollie, was right from the start of professionalism almost, were the standard bearers, the flag wavers for the have-nots. They were never his riches three quarters of their rivals. They never had that kind of financial investment, pretty much from anyone. You know, right from the start, they never had a Sir John Hall. They never had, um, God forbid, an Ashley Levette. They never had an Andrew Brownsword. They were always the, the standard bearers for what you could do and what you could achieve without the riches, comparative riches that some of the clubs had. And, they were not only standard bearers, they were brilliant standard bearers. They won, they won fantastic things. They achieved fantastic things. They had the best academy. It was narrowly focused, brilliantly run by Rod Smith. Even now, the Willis brothers, Barbary, Jacob Umanga, Charlie Atkinson. These, mm. are, these are phenomenal products, which basically, until this happened, said, you can do this. This can be achieved in a professional world without all the professional accoutrements that some of our rivals have. And to lose that spirit, to 
to lose that collectivity is, I think, uh, it's a misuse of the word, but it's in rugby terms, it's pretty tragic. I think. Mm. They did, you know, Chris, they're, they're fine words and, um, and I endorse them, but they did. They have had their backers, you know. Chris Wright would uh, would would argue the toss with you, with you about, you know, them not having backers of the of the standing of some of the others. But um, they've always been peripatetic. There's no question about that. They've always been, you know. I, I was there at, at, at Sudbury in the '80s, and they've, you know, it's always been a club which has been built around that family ethos there's no question around uh, about that you know once a wasp always a wasp that sort of stuff but um you know i i sort of look at it and i think that this is a classic case of a club that overreached itself i think that the idea that they had going to coventry was a very brave one a bold one you looked at the principle of getting hold you know i mean We've had Tony Rowe talking about how Exeter have, you know, built their business, not just the rugby club. And I think that Wasps were trying to do that. And when you look at what the infrastructure that they took on at the Coventry Arena, you know, the stadium, 32,000 stadium, conferencing, casino, hotel, you know, that sort of model. um, And those sorts of revenue streams coming in through, you know, every day of the, the year outside Saturday, I think is, was a bold move. Why it's backfired exactly is, is I'm not sure that it's a complete mystery. You know, Wasps have, have overspent probably as everybody else has on the salary side of things. You know, players have been being paid far more than the game, the revenues of the game uh, have justified. And, and it's, it's one of the unspoken or not, not unspoken, it's, it is being talked about now, but obviously everybody has sympathy with players, particularly in a game that's as, as, as physically demanding as rugby union, that they get paid as much as they can possibly get. Nobody blames the players. The people that I blame are the owners that we talked about two weeks ago with these massively inflated egos playing their games. You know, when you look at the carve-ups that go on whenever a club falters, there's never a gathering around them by the other clubs. That's right. It's the devil take the bloody hindmost. You know, they'll, they'll cut them to pieces. And that's what they're doing at the moment, this bloody pea-share issue. They want to make sure that they're, you know, they're properly nobbled. So Sean, have you been following the situation closely? Yeah, I have, obviously, Ollie. It's, you know, I, I listened to, to Lawrence yesterday and... You know, it's, it's a very sad situation, and, and I, I think, Nick, I, I quite agree with you, what you said in terms of the move to Coventry, but I think what you failed to mention was that model looked very good, very bold. Yeah. What you failed to mention was COVID um, in terms of everything everything that they banked on. Uh, there was no conferencing, there was no hotels, which, which, which really hurt them. Um, but I think it's just really exposed the commercial model in the English game or the world club game probably is a, is a probably a better thing is, is not, not viable. You know, we need to get the commercial model right. And probably we could look at France in terms of their club rugby, how their TV deals a lot be, better than, than premiership rugby. So I think commercially, and obviously New Zealanders, you know, they've, they've gone going through this in terms of how do we generate revenue and, you know, the central, central contracting of the players 
is something I think works much better than the private ownership of these clubs. Um, because as as we're seeing, when when the owners leave, it's not a not a product you're going to want to buy if it's if it's worth anything. So I'm I'm really sad because I, I think the game in England at the moment, the Premiership game, the the product is a fantastic product. You, you know, you look at that game yesterday at, at the Stoop, just a great product to to watch. So financially, we need to we need to fix this. And and I, you know, I heard Sweeney on the radio this morning talk, talking about it. And he's he's probably right in terms of you know in terms of the way the game's been been run at the club level, financially. I'm talking. It's interesting, Sean. I mean, I I I agree with that, but it's interesting how the RFU has sat on its hands, you know, for so many years regarding this. They've uh, you know they've handed over the running of the, uh, the 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 professional end of the club game at premiership level to the owners. And they funded it massively through the PGA. And yet the championship, and this is where I find what he says totally disingenuous. I'm talking about Bill Sweeney. Mm. One of the first things he did when he came in was he slashed their funding from 6.5 million. That's throughout all all the clubs, the 12 clubs in the league, to 1.5 million. They get 150,000 quid a year. And none of them, it's quite interesting, you know, none of them have gone... Have, have gone to the wall financially. They've cut their coat according to their cloth. And in many ways, they are a, a, a sort of beacon of hope if they can ever get their act together as a, as a league for mm. the um, collectively, I mean, because they're as fragmented as the premiership clubs in many ways. Mm. But what I think that this has uh, highlighted is that the game in England, the club game in England, needs to be connected throughout and that the championship has got to be an aspirational league in which clubs can go up and be financially, um, you know, get their share of central revenue so that they can compete. So it's a meritocracy mm. rather mm. than this bloody cartel that we've got at the moment. The thing is, though, Nick, you know, I mean, this, this is a sporting equivalent of the 30 years war, almost precisely. This whole thing was born under a bad moon. It was. It was mm. born in massive conflict. Mm. between the private owners and the union. And I'm not saying Bill Sweeney is in this camp. I rather think he is. Well, I pretty much damn well know he isn't. But there has always been a mood and a wing on the rugby football union which says if we wait long enough, these people will go through the hoop and they'll walk away. And this was said by a previous regime, and you know the regime I'm talking about, up until 2011, 2012, that was absolutely the thinking at the top end of the RFU. I was told it personally by some of the principal people involved. They've been waiting for this to happen. It doesn't involve a buyout for them. It doesn't involve any great political moves. It doesn't really involve another great outbreak of internal warfare and rugby factionalism and what have you. We wait long enough, these people will walk away. And I didn't think they were right now then, they're a bit righter than they were, a bit righter than they were in 2011, 2012, because two have gone. Yeah, but who's you know? I mean, when you look at the implosion, 200 million into the coffers of the Premiership clubs since 2016, up until uh, 2024. So another year to run. Now that's a significant. It, it's a, it's a, it's actually a huge level of funding. And if you look at the RFU's finances. They're actually in a mess. 
you know, and what you could point to one of the main reasons for that being the volume of money that they've, uh, you know, that they poured into the Premiership. So I feel that the RFU, you know, has a, has a massive responsibility for what's gone on, but I don't think that it's greater than the responsibility that the Premiership owners have. And they're the people who are always, you know, sort of sliding off into the sidings on this one. You know, I mean, the, the, the wage inflation that's gone on, and, and as, we, as we discussed two weeks ago, that was there before COVID. These clubs were massively in debt before COVID, and it just it took a, a, an extraordinary event like a like a pandemic to push most of them completely over the edge. But they were they were teetering on the brink anyway. So the model was bust. I agree with you. This you know thus far the model was bust a long, long time ago and started off. And as you say, under a bad mood, and I'd agree with that. And and four of the, and four of those owners and four of those clubs, Nick, as you know, want to wait, inflate wages again, or certainly inflate yeah. expenditure yeah, yeah. again in yeah. this environment by bunging the salary cap back up. Yeah. When when just macroeconomically, no one knows what's happening around the corner, let alone rugby. Well, no one knows what's happening around the corner anywhere, and they want to bung the salary cap back up to win themselves yeah. a title. Oh, yeah. the only people that they'll end up playing is themselves. Indeed. Exactly. The league will go to hell in a handcart at that rate. Sean, you mentioned that the global domestic game would be affected by this. I know you're in London now, but what sort of waves does this make in a New Zealand game that is also faced with these financial challenges and is potentially heading in a similar-ish direction? Well, I think I think in, in terms of professional game, in terms of, in terms of New Zealand, for example, the, the programme's pr- pretty well funded. Uh, domestic competition is struggling. So the provincial clubs, so I'm talking Auckland, Canterbury, yeah. Hawke's Bay, Bay of Plenty, those sort of clubs, uh, they struggle on a year-to-year basis. And then the community game is, is really struggling, which is, which is the same in this part of the world. New Zealand rugby is addressing that. Um, but I think globally, if we could, if we could sort out the club, the club competition and to have a club window, which they're, they're trying very hard to do that, I think commercially that makes our game a bit more viable at club level. Which is what we need to do. You know, I, I look. You look at the best the best teams in the world at the moment. They have good club competitions. You know, you look at France at the moment. They have a good club competition, um, which is which is a change from what it used to be in terms of club v country, where where they're now in line with each other. Ireland is is the same. They have a good club competition, and and it's the same in New Zealand. If you don't play well for your clubs, you don't play international rugby. And to do that, we need good club competitions, you know. And, and you look at the teams that struggle globally in terms of the international teams, they don't have good domestic competitions. How does that fit into an already very hectic calendar? Well, that's, well, that's, well, that's what we've been trying to do for the last three, four years is, is get a club window. Yeah. And, and people need to give. And, you, you know, you guys were spoken about this till cows come home. Um, we need we need everyone to get in line, and we need people to make sacrifices, give away things that they they don't want to give away. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just going to keep going round and round in circles. I think one thing that we didn't speak about a few weeks ago when we spoke about Worcester to the same extent, which Wasps has prompted in terms of a direction, is a people keep using this word major overhaul. Chris, you spoke about a major overhaul, I think, in your latest column for the Rugby Paper. So, what do you mean by that? A major overhaul. To my eye, I, I do like the idea of an of an elite two division tournament. 
it, it, because those of us who have an emotional attachment to promotion and relegation, because it gives you excitement at both ends uh, of a competition, uh, and, and I know it's slightly ghoulish, but some of the best games I ever saw in Premiership games were relegation games. They, they, weren't, they weren't the best in terms of the standard of rugby played because everyone was completely neurotic. <laughs> but it, it had you on the edge of your seat. It's, it's drama. It is drama. Sports drama or it's nothing much. It, it's very inward looking, skills and abilities and all those kinds of things. If there's no drama on the end of it, if there's no jeopardy, I think you lose something massive from any sport. So a two-division elite tournament of whatever size, two divisions of eight. I mean, the county championship in cricket has done this. I mean, and county championship cricket has been played in front of no crowds for donkey's years. No crowds at all. But there is a bit of an electricity about the fact that you have two divisions. You can only fall so far. Below that, in the community game, I would seriously revisit the entire league structure, stop people traveling God knows how many miles on a Saturday when work and family commitments are probably greater or they're more intense in a different way than they were when I was playing. I find it more difficult playing at my level of rugby when leagues were introduced because we had suddenly had to go to Devon and I couldn't work a morning, jump in the car, drive 20 miles, get to the ground and be there in time for kickoff. I could no longer do that. So you're taking days off and that's all been massively magnified. Teams suddenly had to go to Jersey. Jersey, it nearly bust them. One game. Putting people on a flight to go to Jersey. Absolute madness. So below the elite, complete restructuring of finances. You've got two leagues of eight. Let's say if you can find that number of teams who are in a position to be able to participate, even if it's down to two leagues of six, but have something there that gives a little bit of drama, a little bit of jeopardy, and below that, in the community game, I would say revisit the whole league structure. Go back to traditional fixture lists. You can have your local cups, your county cups, and all that kind of thing. But I think the idea of the seamless game, the football-style seamless game, it's only, it, it only exists in one other place in the world, French club rugby. And French club rugby, that is rooted in 100-plus years of tradition. It has public investment. It has people playing on publicly owned grounds. We all know the benefits that the French system has. Massive, massive sponsorship by huge local industries, a, a huge community input. We don't have that here. Oh, anything like it. So the seamless game is, is gone. It's absolutely gone. Yeah. You I need mean, to yeah. isolate two teams, two divisions at the top. And that's your professional structure. Obviously, we're we're about we're one year off coming to the end of a World Cup cycle, and we already know that Sam Simmons, for example, is heading off to France. I just, there are rumours that Manu Tuolangi will do the same. Jack Noel may do the same. Joe Marchant, and this is very much conjecture at the moment. But does this then mean signify a very opportune moment, Nick, for this overhaul? Yes, it does. I mean, it's not just an opportune moment; it's absolutely essential. You know, I mean, if the game here is going to thrive, it has to happen and it and it has to happen now. I don't, you know, I mean, all the stuff about about the French. Look, the French have come up with, a, as Sean said, with a, a, a really tremendously aligned system, which they didn't have before, where club and country are pulling together. The, the commentary about, you know, 100 years of tradition, we got more than 100 years of tradition in this country of the game. The tradition runs very deep, as deep here in many ways as it does in France. And, and also the thing about the local municipalities, local sponsorship and so on and so forth. Look, 
These things are available in this country. The RFU has been pretty poor at harnessing it. Premiership clubs, you know, you look at a club like Leicester, they always seem to have a major sponsor attached to them and so on. So uh, the owners get, you know, in part, they get that right. But the idea that there isn't a greater link to be had with community in this country, getting behind rugby clubs is, is not right in my view. There's a massive amount of work that can be done and that, and that hasn't been done. As far as the league is concerned, the most important thing for me is that clubs can aspire. Now, I agree with the, you know, the two, the two division, the two professional division model, but the crucial thing is, is how it's structured because you cannot have a cartel structure where the premiership protects itself. It has got to be a, a, a promotion relegation system and there has got to be access to central funding for promoted clubs. That is what has not happened. That's why you've had the perpetual bounce back to and from um, you know, the premiership into the championship back into the premiership. I'd also do something like have in the league, in, in National One, something like that, I'd, I wouldn't have promotion relegation every season, but have a system whereby there is a challenge, whereby clubs who build and build steadily and build their not only their uh, spectator base, their infrastructure and their, you know, their fiscal model can challenge, uh, as per the Ranfurly Shield or something like that, Sean, can mm -hmm. challenge the bottom place club in, say, the championship. Uh, and so that you've got that ability still and a vibrancy still within the community game too. In which case, you just go for enlargement. You can just go for enlargement if there are a couple of clubs beneath the two professional divisions who can prove to a French level, let's use the word French again, where, mm. their, where their business models are incredibly yeah. strongly uh, regulated and scrutinised. If you've got a couple of clubs outside of those top two divisions and you've got 16 teams in the top two divisions, go to 18. That's a sign of growth. But yeah. what they do is, is bung a side back out into a, into a division where they're going to win every game by 50 points yeah. or, or just disappear completely like London Welsh. But, you know, you were talking about the, uh, you know, the draw power of, uh, of jeopardy and of, uh, of competition. So that's what I'm saying about something like a Radfurly Shield Challenge. I mean, that competition in the past was the biggest thing really in New Zealand rugby, wasn't it? Below, you know, still, below. So funny enough, funny enough, Nick, it still is. It's yeah. still, if you, you follow the Ranfurly Shield, it's still a, it's a huge thing in New Zealand rugby. But that's nothing to do with promotion and relegation, is it, No, no, it's, I suppose it's tradition of, of, of yeah. the Shield and... You know, the, the Bunnings Championship, I don't know if you're following that at the moment in terms of our provincial, national provincial competition, is a good standard of rugby, which which they use as a feeder into into super rugby, into the teams, which are which are going to be named in the next next few weeks. And is that all is that all fully professionalized, Sean? It, 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 fully professional. There is a feeling because most of the provincial clubs don't make any money, break even. If they don't, New Zealand Rugby Union will will help them out. But what I what I've sort of been involved in a little bit with is the Super Rugby, in terms of the the Super clubs, in terms of say the Blues, for example, which I'm I'm a little bit involved in. They almost have 100 percent ownership now. The franchises and the union funds funds the players and the coaches. So it's up up to the the provinces, Auckland, North Auckland, North Harbour. To, to generate 
generate revenue um, to make them viable, um, which which they have. You know, Auckland's done an unbelievable job in terms of well, the Blues have in terms of turning that round and 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 using other mechanisms to to generate income. Because if they don't, they don't survive. So they've said, right, okay, thank you very much, New Zealand Rugby. We'll go off and look for sponsors, look at you know foundations. 100 club or whatever whatever it is to, you know, the Blues Foundation is, a, is an example of 100 people put in so much money and that money is used to to help fund players or accommodation or the pathway, which, yeah, which if, is if, help, helping New Zealand rugby. But if North if North Harbour had two or three back-to-back horrendous seasons um, for whatever reason they struggled to win a game, there's only, in the structure, as I understand at the moment, it's only so far they can fall, isn't it? Yes, yes, but it's, it's quite interesting. There's a whole generation now that that have been Blues fans. In my day, you'd have a a fan would not support the Blues if they played at North Harbour. Where where now we now have a generation of of Blues fans, and you can actually almost feel the, the tribalism within within the Blues region, as as it seems to have been always in terms of of Canterbury. Have always the Crusaders have always had that tribalism. Yeah, where now the other franchises have created that tribalism, um, which is creating revenue. It, it seems as though if you give a franchise system long enough, mm. then you can build that body of support that sort of, and get to a critical mass of support where the identity of that team imposed on the supporters right back in the day in the mid-1990s, and you were there right at the start of it. Mm. Yeah. You give that enough time and that identity will be established. Absolutely. But that's never been well, that's, tried here. Well, but, but Wales is a country that ignores three quarters of its own country. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, every every serious rugby team, apart from Colwyn Bay right in the north, who are in a sense neither here nor there, every sim is along a stretch of the M4. And that's not a New Zealand setup. New Zealand's a, New Zealand rugby is a countrywide sport, apart from that little bit on the west coast around Queenstown where everyone just goes snowboarding. Um, Guys, shouldn't we address the elephant in the room? It seems there's a bit of a consensus that two divisions, professional divisions, is a way forward. I'd call them Premier One, Premier Two. I wouldn't even make a distinction, call it anything else. But you know and I know that if we were starting now, we'd probably go for that. But we're starting with a cartel in existence with a load of owners who some have put in a lot of money, some haven't put in as much money as some people think, but they are very protective of their status and are they ever going to open their arms and allow another eight teams into premiership rugby? And these eight teams, I'm, I'm working on the two times 10 model, who can equally share all the commercial goodies that would be on offer. Is that ever going to happen? I mean, it's, I think it should happen. I'd like to see it happen. I think it would work, but I don't see how it's going to happen. Well, look, what Sean says about what the Blues have done and that, and that they're responsible for their business model, if you like, I think that. The way that it can be sold to these uh, cartel premiership owners is the fact that you've got a central revenue pot, which everybody gets an equal share of. Then what you're able to leverage in terms of sponsorship, in terms of the fact that, say, Leicester got a ground, 25,000 capacity ground, so on and so forth. It's not going to be equal. You know, some people... No, I should- some people are going to have 10,000 capacity grounds, some 25,000, and that's going to give them extra leverage in terms of sponsorship and so on and so forth. And as far as I'm concerned, that's that model, that's fine. It done, then doesn't go into, you know, whatever they can, can make, doesn't go into a central pot. 
So, so then, then Nick, exactly. So if you've got Exodus 20, well, less is 25, somebody's 10, then that, then that determines, the business model determines how much you can spend. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and if you want to go and buy a Roger Tuivaki check for the Blues, you're going to need funding from somewhere else. Yeah. So then you've got to go and work out how do, how do we generate that income. But that's yeah. how it worked in the Premiership football. You've got like Bournemouth, who've got a small ground, exactly. 10,000, but they get their £150 million a year or whatever it is, share of the Sky Pot, the Premiership Pot. Yeah. So, you know, they get that very, very considerable share of a massive pot. And then after that, as you say, you do what you can. You, you get your local sponsorship, you get your big sponsorship if you can, you get your big investor if you can attract them. That's all up to you and you budget according to that, but at least you get that one massive slice of the cake. Do you, do you, not, do you not think that, that Exeter is a good model for that in terms of where they, where they started? I yeah. don't think Exeter are the, absolutely a model of how a club should be run in the 21st century. Yeah. They've done a fantastic job. But yeah. in terms of their spending, they, commercially they couldn't spend the same as Saracens or whoever. Yeah, and the they, Exeter they, story played, is, they played within their means. And Exeter have been knocking on the door for about eight years trying to get up. Mm. And then they made a slow, they did well in their first couple of seasons. But the extra story is like 15, 20 years old in the modern yeah, time yeah. to get where they are now. And they've built that model. And actually, I think if you look at their squad, I mean, they're, they're very smart in terms of their player recruitment and so on. I think they yeah. get people, they always improve players. They get people, you know, who've got potential and then, it, and then improve them. But I think that actually, when you look at their spend recently, because their revenue streams, if you like, these turn Sandy Park has been turned into a sort of community banqueting hub by the sounds of things. You know, they're actually able to go into the market in quite a big way now. You know, I doubt that their wage bill is any smaller <laughs> than most of the other sort of uh, big money clubs now. Well, Rob Baxter did say, didn't he, when he was trying to um, argue on behalf of Tony Rowe that the salaries cap should go back up against all economic common sense. But mm -hmm. one of the things he did say is that they, Exeter themselves, have spent years not sending up, spending up to the cap. Yeah. And, and I'm sure he's absolutely right about that. I mean, they, they, Brendan's right. They've been absolute, an absolute object lesson. Yeah, in in how to build this thing, but it, it's you know it's a it's a rugby hotbed part of the country. There's yeah. no football to speak of down there. It's it's a big thing in town, and that helps. And, and and actually, you can say that about a hell of a lot of the French um, clubs. You know, Mark Evans was speaking a couple of weeks ago. You draw that line from let's say La Rochelle, sort of broadly diagonally down to the Italian border. And that's rugby territory. Every everywhere south of there is rugby territory. It's the biggest rugby constituency in the world. Exeter, in a micro, in a micro manner, have that. They have Cornwall yeah. next door to them. They draw from a real rugby hotbed. So yes, they've been brilliant. They've had some natural advantages. Yeah. But they've been absolutely brilliant. Yeah, they have been, and they've and they've done very well in in sort of pulling players in from the area. And uh, it'll be very interesting to see if the Cornish Pirates or a Cornish team is in the new structure that we're talking about. It, you know, I mean, because they've they benefited massively from having Cornish players in their uh, in their pot. Um, I think the real issue here is: does the cartel continue, or does it end? And for me. It's got to end for this to for, for any reset to happen. That's got to end. Well, it governs itself, and it can't be it can't be allowed to. It's ridiculous. No. It, it, you need to have an independent executive uh, with, with some punch and power. 
because at the moment they're making up stuff to suit themselves as they go along. And it's, it's not great. It's not, it's not a pretty thing, is it? Probably means the dismantling of this P-share system. And I think that there'll be massive um, opposition to that. But, you know, I mean, look, this is a time where the, the, the English club game is at a watershed. It's a watershed. And uh, that, that is a radical change that needs to happen. Just one final thing I wanted to address before we really do have to move on was an article by Neil Fissler that has made waves in the past week or so where he spoke of a potential merger with London Irish and Wasps. London Irish have released a statement this morning to dismiss that as total speculation. I'm going to ask Chris, Nick and or Brendan, any of you as people who know Neil, whether you know where that came from. Well, I, I wouldn't know Neil Fister's sources, and I'm not sure I'd want to know Neil Fister's sources. <laughs> However, total speculation is different to totally wrong. People use total speculation because they feel they need to say something, and they don't really want to engage with the subject at what may... I'm not, I'm not saying the story is absolutely right, but they've not said it's absolutely wrong. I, I, I'm, total, I'm total speculation is... Yeah is a political phrase. Yeah, I'm going to defend our columnist here, our reporter. His strike rate's pretty high. Very high, but he's a Millwall supporter, so you don't want to know, you don't want to know his sources. No, fair, fair enough, fair enough. But, look, I don't know, but uh, given his strike rate in the past, I'd say that there's, uh, again, you know, no smoke without a bit of fire. He doesn't make it up. Well, I'd say that's been well and truly addressed then. <laughs> Let's move on now. Oh, no, no, we don't want to move on, do we? Let's continue for another hour on this. <laughs> we could honestly be here for far more than that. But, Sean, it is time for your random rugby 15th then. Let's get going. Nickname? Uh, Fitzy. Best rugby memory? Best, uh, probably Loftus Westfield, 1996, uh, when we won the series. Most embarrassing rugby memory? Ironically, I think it was at the Stoop in 1996. I was reserved playing Harlequins for the Blues. We'd, we'd come for a pre-season in January, which I, I don't know why we came to London for a pre-season when we were playing in a summer, <laughs> summer competition. Uh, and I was a reserve and I had my track pants on. Graham Henry said, right, on you go. Took my track pants off and realised I hadn't put my trousers, hadn't had my shorts on. So, <laughs> <laughs> that was quite embarrassing. Was this on the sidelines or had you gone, did you go onto the pitch and then realise? No, on the, si- on the sideline. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, Could have been worse. Yeah. Pre- pre-game tune. No, it wasn't, wasn't, that wasn't what we did in our day. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did you I do? Think we had, I think we had Walkmans. I think Walkman <laughs> with a cassette. <laughs> Sean, Sean played before music was invented. <laughs> Post-game meal. Um, probably a steak. Nice. Well, probably, probably a hamburger on the way home, actually. Also nice. <laughs> <laughs> at, the, at the local takeaway. <laughs> best player you've played against? Uh, best player I've played against? Uh, I, I enjoy the French and keep it in the front row. Uh, Jean-Pierre Garraway. Nice. <laughs> best player you've played with? Well, I've got, I, this is a really difficult one. I played, with, I played with so many great players, but I suppose... A player that I just absolutely loved playing with was was Zinni, Zinzan Brook, who was probably the most competitive man I've ever played with. Could play in multiple positions, very similar to Michael Jones, but just loved the jersey and would you know do anything for it. 
favourite player right now? I don't have a favourite player right now, actually. Or just one that stands out that you love watching or get excited every time they get the ball or make a tackle? I'm going to go with an all-black, I think. Will that surprise you? I don't think I'll ever recover. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to leave that one for now. Okay. The, the, the player, since I retired, the player that I loved was Dan Carter. I just thought he, even now, what he does now, but he just epitomised everything an all-black should be. Um, he was such an influential player in terms of in terms of the way he played the game. I'll accept Dan Carter. Rugby idol. This part of the world, was, ironically, it was a it was a British and Irish line, and oh, it was from the seventy from the seventy one to well, there's two actually, one from the seventy one to one from the seventy seven. It was my desire as a young man growing up. I, I wanted to play number ten, but that lasted about five minutes when I was five years old. Uh, so Gareth Edwards, was, Gareth Edwards was my hero. I wanted to be a nine, and then and then Phil Bennett in in seventy seven, just just phenomenal. Nice. Where I should be saying. I loved Colin Meads. I loved Brian Labour, <laughs> and I love Ian Kirkpatrick. And and ironically, only one of those three is still alive, um, which is a bit sad. Yeah, um, you could have said Sheep Murdoch. Keith, I, I'll be I'll be down at the Angel Hotel on Friday night, on the fourth of November, having a little beer to Keith, which which we do traditionally. We go and taste Keith. Oh, uh, yeah. he's, he's sadly not with us anymore. Yeah, if only he'd had a little beer. <laughs> well, you maybe you know something I don't, Chris. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> favorite stadium. Favorite stadium. It's like golf, isn't it? Your favorite golf course is the one you play well at. As much as I love Ellis Park, it's not my favorite stadium. <laughs> um, I love obviously Eden Park as a as a stadium that's that's brought me a lot of joy. But I I just think the South African grounds are when we went there in '92, they were they're proper purpose built rugby grounds. You know, Newlands. As a purpose, Kings Park. I absolutely love that. But I say, I suppose Loftus Versfeld uh, would be would be my favourite. And and the rugby, the rugby knowledge in the grandstands is quite quite entertaining. Uh, but they're purists, and uh, yeah, I think Loftus. Sorry. Any one of those three grounds, actually. Yeah. Mm. Favorite gym exercise. <laughs> I never went to the gym. Believe it or not, I was in the All Blacks in '86. Never went to a gym until 1992. In your life. Uh, in my, in my life, and that was I was a builder by trade, so my my gym work is on the building site. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I quite like the rowing machine. The erg was quite a good thing. We quite enjoyed that bench press. I, I we used to we used to warm up on hundred kilos, and I always love telling the story that in 90, 95 or ninety four, when Jonah joined the team, he 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 trained with the Fords, and and he he used to warm up on about one hundred and thirty kilos. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a little bit embarrassing. Occupation if rugby didn't exist? Uh, I'd be a builder. Very nice. Superstitions? Um, I, was quite, I was actually quite superstitious, actually. I sort of always, you know, in terms of routines, in terms of pre-game, uh, how I put my boots on, took things off, all those sort of things. What I had for Friday lunch before the game, always uh, where thing. I went, all the same thing. Yeah, but so, so it was quite good when you lost, you get rid of all that stuff. Stop well, what did you have a Friday lunch then, Sean? I was a bit of a chicken man down, right. down at the local local cafe in, in Auckland where we used to go. Rugby law, you would change. I don't know. There's there's, there's a few, but I actually actually the game at the moment's not too bad. The scrum, the the, the time wasting annoys me. I was actually as much as <laughs> as much as I thought it was a bit from left field in terms of what our, our referee did in the Blues Lake Cup game. 
the time wasting is just just diabolical. And you can see you can see teams doing it just in terms of the way they the time they take over lineouts, the time they take over scrums. I would, I would be pushing the stop button every every time there's a stoppage. Who are the worst offenders, Sean? <laughs> in terms of teams or yeah yeah name yeah, names. Well, they all, they all do it. You know, they get they get into situations in the game. You saw Leicester yesterday with Leicester. You know, yeah. in terms of in, in terms of just running the clock down. Uh, and it's not you know it's you know the All Blacks do it. England does it. You know they all they all do it, and it's just Ooh. part of the game. So if the referee's going to stop the clock, it's just I just I just it's just we need a good product. Get rid of the game clock, Sean. People people re- play, people play to the game clock all the time. So what yeah. clock do you have? Back in our day, you'd ask the referee how much longer, ref, and he'd say, "Well, it's none of your business." <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't think that. I don't think well, you could get rid of it, but there's there's enough people running on off the field to say we've got five minutes left, or you know. Yeah. So, but but the one that drives me crazy is when you have a, you've got ninety seconds, haven't you, for the uh, is it the conversion, and the referee will stand by the kicker and give him a, a countdown. So the kicker, rather than at least taking on the jeopardy of not messing this up and getting it right, he's having a countdown relayed to him from the referee. Well, that's got to stop. That's the referee being complicit yeah, yeah. in, in games. Or, 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 or the ball at the back of the ruck. Use it. Use it. Use it again. <laughs> Use it. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, best thing about working in rugby? Uh, I'm a real fan. I, I absolutely just, you know, we've, we've got two girls and I, I don't have to go down to the, the local club every Saturday morning, which I, I would love to do if I had to. But I'm just a real fan of the game. I, I just, I, I really, really enjoy going to Harlequins or, or going to the Blues and I, I enjoy the culture around it. And I think as you get older too, you, the fraternity is an amazing fraternity that we're, we're part of. Fantastic. 15 questions on. Thank you for doing that, Sean. Let's move on and move on to the topic of New Zealand. Now, we were supposed to look back on the rugby championship. I know it's quite a while ago now, and we changed the episode's structure after what happened with Worcester happened with Worcester. But just looking back overall, and obviously I'm going to ask from a New Zealand perspective, it's a dicey time for international New Zealand rugby. Sean, did you feel that Foster should have stayed on? So you three gentlemen smiling away there, smirking away. Um, <laughs> I think you know we'll, we'll look back on this, and New Zealand rugby will look back on, and, and there's things that they they should have done differently. And I, and I think you know Ian Foster will look back at things he he should have done differently. So I I'm not a, a person who who looks at it retrospectively in terms of should have done that, shouldn't have done that. This is this is what we have, and you know decisions should be made maybe in November last year after the review or December whenever it was. In terms of changes that were needed, and they were they were forced on on Ian, and you know as a result of of what happened last year and and against the Irish. And to be honest, Ollie, I think it's it's a blessing in disguise for us. Um, I think uh, when you look back at what happened during the pandemic, we got into some really bad habits. Um, I think us not being involved with South African Super Rugby teams has had a real effect on on the way we play the game. And I think. We got exposed. I think the Irish exposed us, and changes had to be made. and And thankfully, they they were made. And the two guys that have come in, in terms of Joe Smith, who's who we know is world class, uh, he's now full time on the grass, which was which was fantastic in terms of coaching uh, with the team, which he wasn't going to do uh, in, in the the regime they were looking at bringing him in to do or the job. 
and you know the, the Ford coach from Canterbury is is once again world class, and that's that's been proven in terms of what he's delivered with the Crusaders. So there's some real, really real positives that came out of the championship, and especially at the, the back end of it. I uh, think desperation early on when they won in South Africa, it was a real desperation game, and then and then we faltered against the Argentinians. Um, but I think in terms of the the last couple of results. Um, showed that we we definitely have the talent without question in terms of the players and uh, you know in terms of in terms of coaches that's the the key thing going forward you know we've got ten internationals I think left between now and and the World Cup opener against the French in Paris so uh, we'll wait and see but I I wouldn't back against the All Blacks the the you know they I think we're fifth in the world at the moment and it's a it's a bit of a kick in the backside to be honest and. We've got to work hard, and that's something we enjoy doing. That first game in South Africa, Sean. In, in my lifetime, I'd I'd never seen the All Blacks play a game that they never ever looked like winning. There appeared to be right, almost right from the start, no other anchor. Um, yeah, I've never seen that either, Chris. No, I've, was, I've never sat there and think, my golly, we're we're in real trouble here. It was um, astonishing, astonishing. But since then, would, would you? I mean, reasons to get excited about the All Blacks. I mean, am I wrong in thinking? You've probably found yourselves the makings of a pretty good front row, a really good front row. Yeah, that's and that's yeah. We now we've now got you know some quality front rows. Takiaho, the the hooker. Yeah. Um, when you asked me before, Oliver, he, he'd probably be one player that I really enjoy watching at the moment. Yeah. And you know to have to have those two other to have Taylor and, and Coles with him also is. Is a you know they work. I, I listened to a podcast they did the other day. Actually, the three of them, and we're we're very lucky to have those three. Uh, and then these young props that are coming through that can scrummage and run with the ball very comfortable. And you may have taken some steps, uh, I I think, to finding yourselves a um, a proper sort of workable replacement midfield unit. You know, I don't know if they're going to stick with Geordie at twelve, but he certainly made a pretty bright start because he's such a good. I thought, player. yeah, I thought he, yeah, they. And Rico, yeah, Rico. I thought he was outstanding, to be honest, and that's that's what we've probably lacked is that you know, Sonny Bill Williams, that sort of Manonu, uh, a person that you know can complement the ten and and the thirteen, and I was quite surprised when they named him in the in the back the back three in the the touring party, um, but that's an option that they have, you know. Leonard Brown's coming back in. He's been he's been missed hugely. So you know, we've, as I said, we've, we've got the players. It's just you know, as I, as I said, I think J- Jason Ryan's done a really good job in terms of of the forward forward work. But it's no surprise teams that win the World Cup have the best coaches. So let me let me ask you this: that the downside of all this is, and and is counterintuitive because this has been a strength of New Zealand rugby forever. The back five of your scrum. Sam Whitelock, I think, is phenomenal, but there's only, there can only be so much in a tank. With I think he's got, I think he's got another World Cup, and I'm not okay. in terms of this World Cup. But, you know, Brody Rachelix had. It's taken him a while to come back. He, he obviously broke his his, his cheek uh, bone, but he also had had six months in Japan, which I think has taken him a while to get back up to speed. Um, but I think he played well in the championship. Will he get back to uh, Brody? I mean, Brody. Yeah, I, th- I think he played really well in the last couple of games. But he's to have those two, and then, and then I think the real the real dark horse is, is is Scott Barrett. I think he's a player that can play six or or in the second row. 
you know, but I, I think the back three, the, the, the combination with Ardy, Sam Kane, and whoever, that, whether it's Frizzell or Ioane, Satutu, um, once again, good World Cup teams have, have good back rows uh, that complement each other. You know, you look at the A3 team for the English, you know, you look at Kane, Kane O, McCaw, those, those three. So it's a matter of finding the right combinations, really. You won the World Cup, Sean, with, with as great a back row as I've ever seen. I, I mean, and Alan Wetton was one of the great underrated players in the broader, yeah. in the broader rugby community mm-hmm. in, in recent history. I mean, that was a genuinely yeah. great back row. Do you think at the moment with Sam at seven, you have the makings of a great back row? <laughs> I'd, have to, I'd have to ask uh, an Alan Wetton or, a, or a, a player like that, but he's, he's, he's our captain. He's, he's, he's been identified by Ian Foster and, and New Zealand rugby has invested a lot of time and, and money in, in Sam. He's been, he's been around for a long time. He's had his injury issues uh, and he's under the microscope. My golly, he's, you know, as you guys know, being the captain of the All Blacks is not an easy job and, and especially when you're not winning. So they've just got, they've got to have a really good Northern tour. Yeah. You know, they, they head off shortly. Um, they've got three, well, four tough games. They go to Japan and, they, and then to play the Welsh, the Scots and, and fin- finish with England. There's going to be a, a a really difficult tour, but it's a, it's a real opportunity to say we're here, we're not going anywhere, and to start growing a bit more confidence in in in, in the playing group, really. Because they feel very confident. They feel very confident about where they're going. Everything that's coming out of the camp. Is he really good in the dressing room, Sean? Uh, I mean, I mean, yeah. the people really respond to. I, I, I mean, we you know we we don't see what happens in the group. Well, I'm like I'm like you, Chris. I don't I don't go in the dressing room. But, he, uh, but but everything I hear from the players and you know in terms of the reviews, etc., he's he's regarded very highly. Okay. Yeah. One pattern that emerged from the rugby championship from a New Zealand viewpoint was that you loved playing teams for the second time, but not for the first time. So obviously you came up short against South Africa which, you know, Chris has said, you never really looked like winning then. A first ever defeat mm. in New Zealand to Argentina. And yep. then the Australia game, what a game that was. But you, well, yep. it was a controversial refereeing decision that paved the way for an all-black victory. Right. Do you think that's just coincidence? Like, it is a bit weird that it's almost a total juxtaposition, the account you gave of yourselves in those two back-to-back fixtures. I think it's a team that's, um, that was under pressure. I think to start with, and I think secondly, it's a team that's learning. It's a team that's growing, and you know, I look back to where we were in 1994, uh, and we were in a very similar position. We didn't didn't have confidence. We didn't have have experienced players and in key positions that that knew how to how to play in that that environment. And it's a case of learning, and that's where I think Foster's coming from. He, he's he's got an idea where where he wants to get to. And they're getting there slowly. And and what I did, what I didn't say earlier was that this was a major major issue. And you you gentlemen would appreciate having been to New Zealand. This was a major issue for New Zealand because we haven't been in this position for such a long time. And sitting from afar, I absolutely loved it. Loved seeing how New Zealand cared. And yeah. and long long may that continue, because once we stop caring we're not going to be competitive. Was it important, Sean, just going back to Sam Kane for a moment, and one of the reasons I asked you about what he's like within the group, it seemed to me that in adversity, I mean, and it, I, I thought his public-facing performance 
when things were going wrong was extraordinarily good. There was not the hint of an excuse. There was a completely open, honest, upfront, we weren't good enough here. We've really got to look at ourselves, that stuff. You know, there wasn't a hint of an excuse. And he went up miles. I mean, I, 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 I rate him quite highly anyway, but he went up miles in my estimation. I thought he sounded exactly the right yeah. note. And New Zealand would have responded to that as a country, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think he's, you know, he's, he's, he's the right person in that team. And I, obviously I've been in, in the environment with them. And he's a good leader. He's a good leader of men. Um, and unfortunately, just, some of the results haven't gone, haven't gone their way. And they have accepted that. And he's, he's now got an opportunity. But they need, to, they need to play well in the next two months to be able to, to, to go into the break over Christmas with confidence, knowing that they have the right, the right men to do the job and the right coaching set up to do the job. How does Ian Foster look at these four fixtures, Japan, Wales, Scotland and England? Does he look at that as a chance to give a few players a go? Would you like to see I, Roger Kovacek come I think in? He's, yeah, well, that's, that's an interesting question, Ollie. But I, he, know, he knows what he wants. He knows his, his top 23 in terms of which, which players he'd use. The, the key with the World Cup is you need 31 players that can play in a World Cup final. And, you know, you saw in 2015 when the All Blacks won up here that any one of those 31 could have started at, at Twickenham and it wouldn't have made much of a difference in terms of the drop-off performance. So that's that's what they need to build. And I think they're, they're pretty well settled on on how they're going to approach this and, and no disrespect in terms of, of the teams that they're playing and the order they're playing. But if you use it as a World Cup, we're bringing we're bringing a World I mean a World Fifteen. We're bringing a New Zealand Fifteen up also, um, which are which are playing the Barbarians, and then yeah. one other fixture I think uh, Island A. I think they're playing. Yeah. yeah. What are your thoughts on uh, that? By the way, I know that's come under criticism a little bit. That what that the concept of the New Zealand Fifteen and the, taking the sort of mythical or pre- prestige element out of that black jersey. Well, not really, because it's it's a New Zealand fifteen, it's a New Zealand A, or you know, it's a, it's a basically a New Zealand A team, and with the view that yeah. any one of those players, in, and and they've been very selective in terms of who they've picked, that they have potential to be All Blacks, and that's you know we're just developing developing the pathway and the talent really. So I've, I've got no issues with that at all. But if you look at it, they're playing Japan on the way up. You could, and this is no disrespect to Japan, but you could say that's a pool game. They then play Wales, which is which was the quarterfinal, semi-final against Scotland, and then the final against England. And that's sort of maybe how they're going to prepare, you know, for 12, 10 months' time. That's you know, they're gonna to have to win four four big games, you know, to get to get through. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how 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 that progresses. But you know, to play Wales, Scotland, and England three weeks in a row is a is a big call. But they're going to have to do that. They know that. That's that's what happens in World Cups. Get out of your pool, and then you're going to play quarters, semis, final. And question to you, Sean, and to the floor, actually. But is there a an, a potential back that all black that you would like to see given a go this autumn that maybe didn't appear in the rugby championship? <laughs> uh, to be honest, I Roger Tuivaka Sheik. I haven't I haven't seen enough of him. Um, I used to watch a little bit of rugby league, and and he was outstanding. But everything I heard about Roger. Has has been hugely positive, um, and unfortunately, just the way the games have rolled, injuries, he just hasn't been given an opportunity really. So he's played a bit on the wing for for Auckland in the last few weeks, um, which is a bit interesting because I, I yeah, you know, he can play fifteen. He played fifteen in rugby league, and I would have thought they would have seen him in the midfield. So yeah, he he, he will definitely get a chance at some stage, but 
in terms of the players they use during the, the championship, they are the players that we need to, to cement in place. Very, very lastly, I'm not going to ask for any score predictions, which have gone historically terribly on the Rugby Paper podcast. But do you see the All Blacks getting four wins out of four this autumn? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So New Zealand. And, that, beat... that's, that's, and that's not the rugby, the rugby Paper podcast predictions either. <laughs> <laughs> well, as an Englishman, I hope that it is as wayward as our predictions have previously been, uh, because. Yeah, I wouldn't like to see New Zealand beat us at Twickenham in a few weeks' time, but we but, will but, see. In saying, in, saying, in saying that, it's going to be a you know, there's going to be a fantastic autumn. Yeah, um, 100%. everyone's the expectations in terms of ten months out from the World Cup. You know, the, this is probably the closest pre-World Cup that we've seen in terms of the teams that could potentially win. You know, the seedings are, are going to make it really difficult. You know, on one side of the draw, two two of the best teams mm-hmm. in the world are going to be knocked out in the quarterfinal. Yeah, um, which is which is really disappointing. We need to get that right going forward um, because the seeding's been done so many years out is not right. Yeah. I'd be interested to ask Sean one question, just because you mentioned the 2015 side and how strong it was as as a as a, a World Cup squad in the World Cup era, Sean. And you played in what everyone regarded was a great World Cup winning side, but you were pretty much miles better than most in yeah. that. And a lot of us admired the '99 Wallabies. As a, as a pretty complete side. Yep. Was that 25 New Zealand, uh, 23 New Zealand side the best side ever to win a World Cup? Yeah, I think in terms of New Zealand, I think it's probably one of the one of the great New Zealand teams. And and purely, purely Chris, because it, as I said, it had 31 players. And a lot of that team were also there in 07, don't forget, Chris. Yeah. And and how, how they how they turned that around. You know, Richie, how how he turned 07 around, you know, to to just get through 2011. And I think that was almost like, okay, we've got that. Now now we can build a a real, real world-class, you know, team that will... And the way they played in 2015 was phenomenal. Oh, fantastic. I mean, I I, I thought... I I was in Cardiff the night they they absolutely won. Yeah, so was I, yeah. It was astonishing. But those two really hard games... It's semi-final and final, and to yeah. see the aforementioned Carter's contribution, yeah, under great pressure because he was the emotional centerpiece of the whole thing, wasn't he? In a sense, because of yeah. what had happened in 2011, um, it was they were a remarkable team. Yeah, remarkable. well, hopefully you might see something like that in 2019, Chris. <laughs> um, I'd just like to re- reiterate that that's about the 64th time that Chris Hewitt has sung the praises of the 2015 All Blacks. I think there's a book on the way, isn't there? Yeah, there is a book on the way. Yeah, it must be, it must be. <laughs> Actually, before we go, guys, I just wanted to mention one thing there. We, I couldn't disagree with a single word of your analysis, Chris and Fitzy there on the All Blacks. But it did just strike me that actually they did win the championship, you know, for the third year in a row. And that's the one yeah. thing you, you've always got to factor in with New Zealand, even on the rare occasions that it's going wrong, it's, there's arguments, there's debate, all that, they do still have this incredible knack of finding a way. So fair play to them for that. And the other thing, my big hope for the autumn, which I agree is going to be superb, there's going to be so much on the line and they're going to crack all these matches. I think that this guy, Will Jordan's a bit special. We haven't actually seen his, up here, we haven't seen his full array of talent no. yet. I've got a feeling he might just ignite this autumn and show us something special. Yeah, yeah good call, Brenda. 
And actually, on that note of the All Blacks just managing to get things done, Sean, while we've got you, I'd like you to put your neck out and say where you think the All Blacks are going to get to. Do you think you're going to win the World Cup? (laughs) (laughs) Oliver, Oliver, I'll probably come back on the podcast next year and we'll see how we get on in the autumn, shall we? Okay, all right, fine. Well, I'll hold you to that then. That sounds like a square deal. The $64 million question is, who spent more time on the New Zealand right wing? Will Jordan... Or Sean Fitzgerald. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, On that note, I remember right. when, when we toured. When we toured, remember when we toured here in '93. They uh, Laurie Maines left John Kerwin out, and uh, he said he said to me, "Like I'm not, I'm not going to take John Kerwin on the tour." I said, "You have to take him. He'll be great for for mentoring young Jeff Wilson." Blah blah blah. He said, "No, I'm not taking him." So we came to the meeting, and I, I said, "Oh well, I want to sit in the meeting when you drop him," and he. Came in and he said, oh, John, I'm not taking you on the tour. Sorry. Yeah. He said, well, why? Why aren't you taking me, Laurie? He said, because I'm not scoring enough. You're not scoring enough tries. And he looked at me and he said, you know why I'm not scoring enough tries, Laurie? Because your fat captain is on my wing the whole time scoring tries. <laughs> <laughs> so that was oh, it. That's anyway. brilliant. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Right, Sean, it's been absolutely okay, guys. great having you. Thank you so much for joining. Pleasure. And look forward to the Autumn Internationals, to the Laureus Challenge 2022, the awards. And Thank you. Yeah, hopefully see you soon on the podcast as well. See you, guys. Good to see Cheers, you. Cheers, Fitzy. Great to talk to you. Okay. Good to see you, Sean. Rugby Paper is available in stores on Sundays, or you can get it delivered to you through our digital subscription. Next week, we'll be looking at South Africa's state of affairs going into the Autumn Internationals with former international lock Flip van der Merwe.